0: Cognitive Revolution, I'm Cody Comers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. In each episode, I talk to eminent scientists, writers, and creatives about the personal experiences that shaped the way they see the world. We go deep inside their biggest turning points, the books that had the greatest impact on their thinking, the mentors who inspired them, their pointers for best practices in their craft, and the obstacles they've overcome along the way. I come to these conversations with a belief that the real story of an idea lies not just in understanding it as an abstract entity, but also as the product of a particular person working in a particular place and time. This show is about the person behind the idea. So this is the first pod of the new year. I took a little bit of a break over December uh, because I had a big deadline in my PhD program and was, taking breaks was sort of the theme of 2020, trying trying to do a small modicum of work and then recover from having done that. Um, but in this beginning of the, the show, I guess I just reflect a little bit on the previous year and, and the things that I've accomplished and the things that I've done. And I think above all else, one thing stands out. And uh, that was actually that... Toward the end of the year, I finished the entire series of Downton Abbey in about two weeks flat, which, you know, it's no breaking bad. It's not, I mean, I, not, I don't think, you know, it's not, we're not talking hundreds of hours here, but still, that is a serious, I mean, it's six seasons, uh, it, you, know, you know, close to what, 10 hours per season? And I, I just, I knocked it out at a rate of about, two seasons per day, no, no, sorry, a season every two days, which that, those are some, those are some professional numbers right there. And, uh, I think this was really my signal accomplishment of 2020, uh, which, you know, if you just sort of generalize from that, I think this is the, the line of productivity that best describes the, uh, the way that I interacted with the year. But at any rate, I do know if you haven't watched the show, it's, actually an incredibly brilliant show. Most people, I think, would tell you that it's about that it's a period piece, right? That it's about, um, you know, British people doing uh, old fashioned British things uh, and, you know, saying all this stuff that sounds overly English. And yeah, that's the imagery of it, but I actually don't think that its defining characteristic is as a period piece. Downton Abbey, is at its core fundamentally a show about social change, right? And so, what happens in the in the show is that you is that you have uh, this very rigid social structure, right? You have the um, you know the family that lives in Downton Abbey, the the Crawleys, and each one of them has a very specific role and rank. Each of these things, and then there's the underclass, which is the the maids and uh, the butlers and, and all that sort of stuff. And there's again a hierarchy there. And so, what they set up in this world, which is established in the first season, is the most explicit social structure that you could imagine. There's not really, I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's an excellent choice of that microcosm because there's nothing that exists like it in American. Uh, uh, culture necessarily, but you, so you have this society in which every person is giving, given an explicit way of relating to every other person. And then the point of the show is, so you have this well-defined social system, and then what we're going to do is we're going to introduce tumult into that milieu, into that world. And the, the sort of, uh, the in, what, what instigates this is World War I and the the onset of that. And that's when this world, this social structure and and the fabric that runs all through it starts to change. And so what the show explores is how, when you have that social structure defined, what role do, uh, A, people's individual personalities and their disposition to rebel against those roles and or fulfill those roles, um, uh, as well as the change and essentially degradation of the society as a whole. And that's an interesting topic, right? It's a big topic. It's, uh, you know, social change. Why do, you know, societies and uh, individual relationships and uh, family structures, et cetera, take the shape that they, that they do? And it's a brilliant investigation into a really interesting case study of that. Um, and so that is... I I think uh, I, I I don't know I just got a lot out of it, and like I said, uh, you know I think that was really that was that was a big you know that was my big moment in in 2020 was was getting through that having making some big realizations about that and I just wanted to share that so you know we could all be proud of of of, of the the big things that I've I've been up to recently. At any rate, this is an episode that I'm very excited to share with you. Um, it's uh, My guest today is Richard Nisbet. Um, I've got his Wikipedia page here. Um, he is the Theodore M. Newcomb Distinguished Professor of Social Psychology and Co-Director of the Culture and Cognition Program at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Um, More to the point for me, uh, he is the author of one of my favorite psychology papers of all time, which is telling more than we can know verbal reports on mental processes, uh, with Tim Wilson in 1977. And it's a brilliant paper. We talk a lot about the genesis of that, um, and where those ideas came from and just about, um, Richard's overall, uh, you know, sort of trajectory throughout his scientific career. It was a lot of fun to talk to him. Um, we, we touch on, you know, a lot of the major points of his his career, and then we sort of, the conversation devolves into, um, you know, our own sort of discursive discussions about psychological history and uh, Freud and uh, Gordon Alpert and um, Kurt Leuven and some other key figures. So first half, if you're interested in Nisbet, second half, uh, you know, feel free to listen on if if that's of interest to you as well. But um, the other thing that I want to mention at the outset here is that I'm trying a new experiment, which is uh, that I'm releasing uh, um, reading lists, actually, of the, uh, the guests that I have on Cognitive Revolution. And this is through uh, the website bookshop.org, which is a competitor to Amazon for where you can get your books online. Uh, I will give a lot more details about why I'm doing it, but the basic idea is that, you know, when I now that I've been doing this podcast, you know, I started in 2019, it's 2021 now. What is it going to look like going forward? Um, you know, A, one of the things that I love talking to people about, I think one of the most interesting things is what are the books that most influence them? Uh, It gives you so much insight into the way they think and and, and who and what they've been shaped by. And also, you know, to go and read some of those books for yourself. And then the second thing is uh, this is a way for me to start to make money from the show, which I'm not big on the whole, you know, I'm going to slap a, you know, price tag Patreon sort of thing on, on the show or you know, it's, the advertisement's not quite the right opportunity at the moment, but doing these reading lists uh, through bookshop.org, if you buy through my link, then uh, 10% of those proceeds go to me. You get a book, which is it's a win-win, as far as I'm concerned, um, and you get to support a business um, that isn't Amazon. So it, to me, it just seems like a, a good move from what I'm interested in, what I like to do, Um, uh, a way to benefits me making the show and you as the listener. And so I will release, we talk a lot about um, the books that have influenced Richard uh, throughout his career. And so I will release a a collection of of those. Keep an eye out for that. At any rate, uh, thank you for listening. I'm looking forward to sharing a bunch of great guests this year. And um, I will uh, uh, give you more about what that's going to look like and um, you know where I'm at with the show and everything in future episodes. So as always thank you for listening and without further ado here is Richard Nisbet. So you are in Arizona now. you lived in Michigan for a large portion of your professional career. Where did right. you where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in El Paso, Texas and that's Part of the reason that I'm here in Tucson now, because uh, El Paso is uh, built around a desert mountain, and Tucson is surrounded by desert mountains, and I just have a physical need for desert mountains.
0: <clears throat> and what was your what was your family like growing up? What did what did your yeah what, did you have brothers sisters? What, what did your parents do? What what was what was your
1: early childhood experience? Oh, my father. <clears throat> Started out in a business that no longer exists, um, retail credit. He would go around to a person's neighbors to find out whether they were a good credit risk. and Is he an alcoholic? Does he beat his wife? Et cetera. And then at some point, uh, when I was probably six or seven, he was hired uh, as an insurance salesman. Very few insurance salesmen at any point in history have made much money, my father did. I mean, he ultimately ended up with an upper middle class uh, income. <clears throat> and uh, my mother was a, a highly intelligent woman who uh, was trapped as a 50s housewife, <clears throat> which was a shame because she had a, a lot of talent uh, and she was not meant to hang around a fifties household emptying tiny garbage cans <laughs> every hour um so um that's that's the basics of uh early, my my very early childhood
0: <clears throat> yeah that's interesting so was there was there an was there an expectation about what you were going to grow up to do but from either of your parents
1: no uh the extreme laissez faire <clears throat> I never talked with my parents about what I might do. I mean, it was understood that i would go to college. That was pretty much it.
0: And then when did you, when did you start to get interested in psychology then?
1: Well, that's easy. My father had a nervous breakdown as they called it then, um, which was uh, a uh, psychotic episode uh, of the um, bipolar sort. Uh, and I, uh, this was when I was 15. <clears throat> so somehow I got hold of a of a copy of a Primer of Freudian Psychology by Calvin Hall, and it just blew the top of my head off. I said, "Oh, this is fantastic! I know I know what I'm going to do with myself now." And it's interesting. All through college, my friends, eh, I don't know, I'll be a lawyer. Oh, I don't know. I'll- uh maybe i'll try to be a writer i mean i knew exactly what i was going to do the day i stepped into college which is a real advantage actually sure
0: yeah so you you knew academic psychologist was the path
1: um
0: okay so freud oh, I, didn't,
1: I didn't know that it was it was academic oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> when i first at age 15 i, I didn't know what academic meant no, that's sure. a joke um, <clears throat>
0: so i'm actually interested about the freud thing so i think a lot of students these days when they encounter freud and psych 101 or whatever they're like why man why are we studying this stuff uh because so much of it is is plainly absurd but i think there is i mean there's just so many people especially from your era and before that just freud was what got them thinking in this expansive way so what was what was the book or the, or the text that you read and can you speak to a little bit about how it you know what 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 was what was it that like occurred to you was like wow this is this is really something that i want
1: to investigate what well, was it about freud that made me think yeah uh, and I, what we, was the particular text I, I i couldn't tell you any particular thing i mean i've had an interesting history with freud i mean at first you know like any 15 year old would, i swallowed it Hook line and sinker, <clears throat> and then over the years, more and more of it began to seem preposterous or implausible. But there is a core there, which I've, uh, of uh, of of true insights. I mean, really remarkable insights. Um, and uh, so, you know, I've I've actually found myself defending some aspects of Freud in print. So,
0: like, can you can you give an example of what one of those insights, one of those profound well, insights, be? Just a general um, sketch.
1: The, the the most important insight is how much mental work goes on outside of consciousness. Um, now, Freud wasn't the first person to posit the existence of an unconscious, but he was <clears throat> very firm about you know you you can't see most of what goes on in your head, um, and. Just because it's opaque, um, and then actually somebody told me recently they sort of messed it up by saying, actually, it's repression. You can see everything that isn't repressed, and that's ridiculous. I mean my <laughs> one of my main things I did in my career was show that they just we don't we are unable to see the workings of our mental processes, period,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, maybe that person was confused because I do, I, I know there's a Freud quote in his, um, history of psychoanalysis, which says that repression is the core of the psychoanalytically observed unconscious. So maybe that was an over extrapolation there, but nonetheless, certainly, uh, what <laughs> it is an understatement to say that you contributed to our understanding of, uh, of unconscious things that have nothing to do with repression, um. So yeah. So what was what was the moment where you started to get traction, or that you? So you knew you got into college knowing that psychology was what you're interested in. When did that start to get a
1: more well formed direction? Well, um, I don't know. It just sort of grew. I mean, I became more and more convinced that I this is <clears throat> what I was meant to do, uh, and I you know, really thoroughly enjoyed doing it. Um, I had a a type of education that'd be hard for people today to imagine a psychologist getting, a a psychology major getting, which is that Freud and uh, the behaviorists, the SR people, learning theorists, had pretty much figured out how the brain works and how, how behavior works. And the, the future was just going to be sort of filling in the blanks there. Uh, and that left me ill prepared for graduate school, working for Stanley Schachter, who had been Festinger's student, who had been Kurt Lewin's student, that most. Uh, Graduate students in social psychology even today have not heard of, but he founded the field, including the uh, idea that you could do experiments, uh, true experiments on human behavior.
0: Well, it and, sort of came full circle because you were the, uh, the you were the director of the uh, the lab that he founded at MIT,
1: which moved to Michigan, right? Right. For a while, I was director of the oh. lab he founded. <clears throat> but even more important than founding the experimental aspect of the business uh was the theoretical perspective which he took which had nothing to do with freud and nothing to do with learning it was actually a gestalt derived uh theory um, and he was german only recently by the way did i begin to realize that in 1939 uh by far the best psychology uh, that was uh going on was in Germany. And most of it was uh, gestalt-related, at the very least. Um, And then, uh, of course, the war ended uh, psychology, academic psychology in Germany. And there wasn't good uh, psychology coming out of Germany for another 30 years after the war. But um, So at any rate, uh, Schachter had this gestalt, highly cognitive orientation. And it was really a shock to me. I mean, I just, you know, it was just not what I understood psychology to be. Uh, And, uh, of course, I was extremely lucky to have worked with Schachter, extremely.
0: What was was he like as a mentor?
1: He was uh, fabulous. I mean, uh, he was casual frank, uh, open. Um, he, he, he drew what was best out of every student. Uh,
0: Is there anything that you employed in your own lab with your own students that you learned from him? Was there some sort of best practices in, in mentorship and, and helping other people to develop as scientists?
1: Well, partly, I mean, he, um, He collaborated with his students. A lot of professional psychologists, academic psychologists, don't really collaborate with their students. We say, here, take an experiment. (laughs) Come back when you've got it. Um, He was very collaborative. And the greatest pleasure of my career was sitting down day, early in a graduate student's career and saying, and just banding a bunch of ideas about, and when student got, seemed to get interested in a particular one, I would try and develop that. Uh, and we would collaborate and build things uh, from the start. Um, and uh, I was actually more collaborative with my students than Chapter was with his, but he was quite collaborative. So I certainly learned that from him. Um, I also learned how to do graduate teaching from him. Uh, He didn't lecture. I mean, it was small courses, of course, there were graduate courses, so lecturing would not have been likely. Um, But he would hand out each week thought questions. (laughs) That's not uncommon. What is uncommon is that Schachter uh, expected you to have thought about these questions <laughs> and woe be tied if you had not. I mean, he would say, well, take a crack at number two, Nesbitt. And uh, if you, if you didn't have something intelligent to say, he let everybody know it. So um, uh, we got much more out of his classes than would have been the case. Incidentally, apropos of learning theory, I found out like within the past year that schachter who had gotten his degree at yale where uh clark leonard hull was who was a very famous sr theorist and that was the way uh hull taught even his undergraduate classes so um uh, so i did make contact with that holy background after all
0: yeah huh Okay. So one thing that I I like to ask about is what, what are the books that have most influenced your thinking? So so, maybe some of them will have been around this time in graduate school, but you know, it can be throughout your entire career. And it also doesn't have to be limited to uh, psychology works. If there's things, if there's novels, poems, uh, Mm -hmm. memoirs, what, what range of, of books come to mind for things that have shaped the way you think
1: about things? well I uh, think when you first uh, asked this question you didn't uh, you didn't emphasize that it, 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 you were asking about the books that had shaped the way I think about things you just asked what books that made an impact on me and so I actually had quite a bit of fun thinking about that um, the uh, uh, early 20th century <clears throat> journalist HL Mencken, uh, wrote once, the most stupendous event in my life was reading Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> and I could practically say the same thing myself. Really? Yeah. And for 30 years, every four or five years, I, I read Huckleberry Finn. I, I just find it a miraculous book. I mean, um, but, uh, and it wasn't until mid-adulthood that I read another book that had the same kind of incredible impact on me. And that was a hundred years of solitude by Gabriel uh, Garcia Marquez, um, and um, it just I mean I just was li- living in a different world the whole time I was reading that book. But as I've already pointed out, the book that made most uh, important impact on my career was reading Calvin Hall's book on Freud. Uh, And ultimately, Freudian psychology isn't something that really had that much of an impact on me other than getting me into the field and getting me to think about mental life. But uh, the next most important book was Fritz Heider's uh, Psychology of Everyday Life. Or what was it? it? That's not quite the title. Um, But uh, do do you know Fritz Heider's uh, book the title?
0: I can't remember the the title of his book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. At any rate, it was, uh, and for many years, every other year or so, I read that book. And if people want to see what, what an impact it would have had on somebody like me, read chapter four. Uh, <clears throat> it's just full of incredible insights. Um, and Hyder, of course, was uh, um, I'm not sure he was a Gestaltist. He was a German, uh, but um, uh, it's the, the the book as a whole. It's just I mean, it it really you can't understand the history of modern cognitive social psychology without reading that book. I mean, that that's that's where it started, really.
0: Yeah, I, I just looked um, it up. I believe it's the Psychology of Interpersonal Relations.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I think you asked me for five. Anyway, I only got as far as five, (laughs) a book called Personal Causation, uh, which is a kind of quirky book, but it really, it came out in the sixties, I'm thinking, uh, it never got very well known, but he, he certainly had the orientation that the early, uh, cognitive social psychologist had. I mean, they, he, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting book. And then there's a six. Paul Meal's uh, uh, Clinical Versus Statistical Prediction, which was, had a huge impact, of course, on me. I mean, that, that's a lot of my career has been concerned with um, how people fail to think statistically. Uh, and that book certainly laid the groundwork. Uh, for that uh, orientation yeah
0: those are uh those are uh some really good selections you know speaking of the the germans and uh the gestaltists it makes me think of uh, this line that i came across recently so you have another person uh who's important in the historical milieu of socio-cognitive psychology gordon alpert and you know, he started his career in the uh, 1910s, 1920s, and his brother, Floyd Alpert, was a prominent behaviorist, uh, wrote a you know, behaviorist text called Social Psychology. And Gordon Alpert wrote a, uh, basically a critique of his brother's book, even though his brother, several years older, was um, the you know, sort of more established figure that people you know, sort of looked up to and thought, oh, here's gonna be the great you know, social psychologist. And uh, Floyd's dismissal of uh, Gordon's critique was uh, that Gordon, having coming back uh, from Germany only recently, was all full of gestalt and pretzels. So uh, that uh, just made me think of of, of, of that.
1: So, so who's that? whose expression is that? All full of gestalt and pretzels?
0: Floyd Alpert, uh, Gordon's Gordon's brother, older brother. So
1: Gordon said that. And Floyd said that of Gordon.
0: Yeah, so so Gordon came back with, uh, you know, so he went to Germany. Uh, a lot of the founders mm-hmm. of um, Gestalt psychology were sort of older men by then. And so he sort of had a spiritual communion, a pilgrimage to Germany, and then returned. And uh, basically his initial critiques of behaviorism, which he maintained throughout the entire uh prominence of of behaviorism from the 1920s through the 1950s uh was very much based off of um uh the the gestalt theories coming out of germany and evidently according to floyd the pretzels
1: right um yeah well that that's very nice bit of history to know i didn't know it i actually all through undergraduate school i went to tufts And uh, You probably have not heard of a book uh, called, uh, what's the title? Um, I'll think of it in a minute. Um, It's Jude the Obscure. Um, It's um, a book about a working-class young man who has intellectual aspirations, and he was desperate to, to go to Oxford. Uh, and so he moved to Oxford to sort of not, having no clear idea of how he could become connected to it. And, uh, and in fact, never did succeed in that. But that's the way I felt about Harvard. I went to Tufts, which is in the same city, practically, adjacent cities as Harvard. And every day I was there, I wanted to be at Harvard. Uh, and that was what I was working toward in uh, undergraduate school, uh, knocking myself out. Getting the best grade point average I could, and then sure enough, I got into Harvard. I mean, and, and, and actually met uh, Gordon Elport. But meanwhile, uh, before I made my decision, a friend of mine said, "I'm you know I've got accepted to Columbia Law School. Uh, would you like to drive down with me?" I said, "Yeah, I got accepted by Columbia. I'll go there." <clears throat> and I met. Uh, social psychologist. I wonder if you've heard of him, William Maguire. Um, Come across
0: the name, don't know any of the work.
1: Yeah, well, there's not much work there, really. Although he spent the entire day and evening with me, and it was perfectly clear to me that this was noticeably the smartest person I had ever encountered uh and he asked me at some point you know where, where you can where, what other schools are you considering and i said harvard and he said oh well harvard is of course a great university but it's not very good for social psychology <laughs> so well, that kind of shocked me so i went back and asked our local social psychologist what i should do and he said for god's sake Columbia, because McGuire's there. He's very good, and Shachter is the best person in the country to work with. Mm. So sheer accident. If I'd gone to Harvard, I would have been, you know, I would not have been the psychologist I am. It would not have. But that, but I'm I'm quite interested that that Gordon had that um, that uh, Gestalt influence on him as well.
0: Yeah. So, um. Uh. You know, actually, I think that his his um, background as a cognitiveist is dramatically underval, uh, underappreciated uh, in in the general way we talk about psychology history and cognitive science history. There would be no Jerome Bruner and George Miller in the way we understand them if there was no Gordon Alpert, and he he died really before cognitive science got going in earnest, so he doesn't really get the credit. But I think that he really was the actual progenitor of the progenitors. Um, if, but...
1: if you could send me a reference to that, I'd love to have it, because that's just a piece of history that I did not know. Awesome. <clears throat>
0: uh, yeah, we'll, we'll correspond about that offline then. Uh, but anyway, I do actually know Jude the Obscure because you know, being in Oxford, there is, as a matter of fact, a bar named Jude the Obscure uh, after the Thomas Hardy novel, uh, right down the road for me, incidentally, uh-huh. uh, directly across the street from the psychology department. So,
1: That's um, great. yeah,
0: pretty funny. Uh, historical detour is aside. Uh, what? So you went to Columbia uh, to work with Stanley Schachter. When? When did you feel like you started to develop what came to be your? program of research, right? When did, when, did it, when did it start to take shape in a way that corresponds to what it
1: turned out to be? Well, it was actually much later uh, than you might think. Um, Schachter uh, got interested in obesity. He was thinking, of course, he was uh, uh, one of his main contributions was showing how easy it is to confuse us about the origins of arousal, that you know we can just totally misattribute our arousal uh, to an to a, an object or a circumstance that isn't the correct one, uh, with you know very sometimes very important consequences. <clears throat> uh, so he the, the psychoanalysts um, he, that he hung out with, Schachter had a vacation home on far eastern long island spectacular area of the country um and that's where the rich psychoanalysts from manhattan went uh in the summer um and they all thought that um the reason people were fat uh was because they misattributed uh their anxiety and thought it was hunger uh social actor said i didn't believe that but he started looking at what were What's going on with fat people? And I spent mm, half of my career in graduate school working on uh, obesity. Um, Schachter thought that uh, fat people uh, were misattributing um, uh, their, uh, their, well, that they were i guess the the original idea was that they were misattributing their anxiety uh to hunger but then he decided no what's going on is that they're just very for some reason uh uh, affected by external cues so uh food cues you know are more tempting to them or whatever and there was something actually basically right about that idea and i did some of the work showing that, that fat people were not very Uh, much influenced by food deprivation. They ate about as much regardless. Um, And uh, how long it had been since they had eaten. And they were indeed quite taste responsive. And at some point in doing reading about obesity, I stumbled across the idea of the ventromedial hypothalamus lesioned rat whose behavior was very reminiscent of fat people's behavior. So, uh, and Schachter actually wrote an article on which he said all of this, most of it based on my work, actually. Uh, but I kept doing it and I began to realize, no, they really are hungry. There's no question about it. Uh, and that re- realization came from reading about the Minnesota studies during World War II on conscientious objectors who volunteered to to be severely food deprived so that scientists could see what happened with that? Um, you conscientious objectors, and my God, they looked exactly like obese humans and VMH lesioned rats. Um, and so uh, I pointed out, you know, my in an article that was published a year after Schachter's, what was really going on is that uh, they were hungry. Uh, and they were hungry because they were trying to keep their weight down. Uh, and when you are hungry, uh, you have, you know, extreme taste responsiveness, you have very little uh, responsiveness to uh, deprivation. Any anyway, rate, so that that's <clears throat> and I for some reason, I, I decided I was a physiological psychologist. so <laughs> uh, And I, I went back and read, some of my notes from the graduate school period and the early period uh, after uh, and they were full of physiological psychology hypotheses. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's just so strange to me. Who the hell was this guy? <laughs> was my reaction <laughs> reading, reading these notes. Uh, and I don't know why I got, went, decided to go down that track, but that's why I, I went to... Uh, Yale rather than Harvard, actually, for for a job, for my first job. Um, But at any rate, um, the other work I had done with Schachter, that's what gave rise to my career. uh, That is showing that uh, people would take more electric shock uh, if they thought they had been given a pill that would produce arousal. They're just seeing how you could manipulate people's cognitions about arousal, their attributions about ar- arousal. <clears throat> and then I started doing attribution stuff I, you know, a couple of years out of graduate school. I went full blast on it. Uh, and one way or another, I mean, my career sort of followed a very sensible s- sequence of events after that.
0: So your your most cited paper and definitely one of my favorite psychology papers of all time is Telling More Than We Can Know with Lee Ross. So what was the genesis of that? It's Tim Wilson. Sorry, Tim, Tim. Wilson. Uh, yeah. My bad. Uh, with Tim Wilson. Uh, and so, I'm, yeah, what is the genesis of that paper? And um, what is the connection with, you know, so those early insights about... Uh, attributions and, and you know, sort of when it, I guess, took its more, full, uh, uh, full form in that paper.
1: Well, uh, it actually derives from this uh, shock experiment that I was just talking about. Um, I said, gee, people are gonna, uh, gonna give them the pill. It's gonna cause arousal. Then I'm gonna give them steadily increasing uh, shock levels. Uh, And they're to tell me when they can first feel it, when it first becomes painful, and when it's too painful to continue. And the people who had the pill that they thought was causing their arousal took much more shock. I mean, much more shock. Um, So, you know, like any good experimental psychologist of of that time, at any rate, after this subject had taken... All this shock, I said, "Gee, you, you took a lot of this shock. Um, can you tell me why?" Fully expecting them to say, "Oh, well, I don't know. I got I started getting the shock, and it bothered me, and it I got, got worked up." And it's, "Oh, oh, yeah, that right. The pill uh, that that they, that that's causing my arousal." And so, since uh, that attribution had been made, they took a lot more shock. Uh, not a single subject said that. Uh, and as I worked my way up to finally t- giving them the theory, I said, I, so I, what I thought was happening to you is that you would think about the arousal, then you'd think about the pill and realize the pill was causing your the arousal. And all subjects looked at me with a blank stare when I said that. So... <laughs> Uh, and that, that really had a big impact on me. They had no idea what was going on with it. Here's this, you know. And it's not a complex or an a, 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 a abstruse thing uh, to, to, be a, to have been thinking about. Uh, so uh, then I began to think about <clears throat> uh, cognitive dissonance, which was the thing that was most being uh, celebrated during my graduate career, <clears throat> and realizing people can't know what's going on in their heads. Dissonance doesn't, the dissonance experiments by Festinger and others don't work uh, if uh, people uh, understand uh, what's going on in their head, because they do, I mean, they wouldn't, if they could say, oh, you know, I said this thing that I didn't think I believe, uh, and but I guess, you know. Uh, since I said it, I, I probably do believe it. And, and uh, um, obviously, and if you ask them, you know, after, not that anyone was doing it, but I have no doubt that if you ask the subject in a dissonance experiment, they would never give you an accurate account of what was going on in their heads. They wouldn't have behaved as they did. <clears throat> and they wouldn't have changed their attitudes by virtue of having given a counter-attitudinal speech. Uh, They wouldn't have done that uh, if they knew what was going on in their heads. So, uh, and then the things just began to mount. At some point, I read that spectacular experiment (laughs) done 90 years ago um, um, by, uh, no, blanking on the name. Uh, where he has a, a laboratory strewn with various objects and there are two cords hanging down from the ceiling. And he says, your task, subject, is to tie those two cords together. <clears throat> Meanwhile, uh, he's, the experimenter is you know, puttering around the room, picking up a wrench or whatever. Uh, and uh, every time the subject solved, the problem is, okay, now do it another way. And the subjects were left um, at some point that for several minutes have passed, they ha- haven't, come, haven't come up with the, the, the solution he's after. And he casually, the experimenter casually sets, clicks one of the ropes and uh, uh, within 45 seconds, nearly all subjects, tied some weight around one of the cords, set it into motion, Went to the other cord and grabbed the, the, the pendulum cord as it comes by and ties them together. <clears throat> and he asked him, how, how, "How did? How is it that you happen to do that? Uh, what? What? what how, how did that idea come to you?" And uh, and no subject said, "Oh, well, because you set the cord in moving." And I said, oh, my God, that's the ticket. No one said that." <laughs> uh, So, and then the the experiments are just so elegant. I mean, nailing down that it was the cord that did it, that that no subject understood that that was what did it. Um, And I had a couple of things like that in my pocket when I went to say, let's, went to Tim and said, let's show just how blind people are to what's going on in their heads. And we did all of the experiments, every one of which uh, worked out just as we thought. I mean, uh, actually, that's not right. They worked out in the sense that they contributed positive evidence to the hypothesis that people can't observe their cognitive processes. <laughs> but in many cases, <clears throat> we misguessed what behavior would be produced by the situation because you know, we can't look at what's going on in our heads either. So, um, yeah, yeah.
0: Wow. Um, so that's really interesting. And, uh, I think the, um, the Lee Ross collaboration I was thinking of was your, your book together, uh, the person in the situation, which, uh, an interesting fact about that is that, Malcolm Gladwell has gone on record as citing that as one of his favorite books of all time and with you as uh his favorite uh psychologist obviously he has done as much if not more than anyone else to bring certain aspects of social psychology to a very general audience. Uh so what's what, what do you do you know him do you, do you have a relationship with him or what do you what do you make of all that?
1: Uh well, I'm puzzled by it. I mean, <laughs> <it's> <laughs> very, very flattering, it's true. What? I mean, your whole orientation came from. It, it's actually it, that. That's not the first book. The first book he saw that had the big impact on him <clears throat> was the uh, Culture of Honor book, oh. uh, and and he just said, "Holy shit, this is a whole new thing," and it was really mostly due to the graduate student who did most of the research, who was just gifted and. Coming up with ways of testing that, like uh, which, uh, wh- where do the the Congress congrac- representatives come from who who vote for the war of the moment? Uh, and it turns out heavily to be the, the South. And who was that graduate student? Dove Cohen, D O V Cohen. Uh, And he's just, I mean, if you look, just flip through the book and and see the incredible resourcefulness, including the wonderful one with this guy uh, who, uh, it's a letter allegedly from a man in his late 20s uh, who's applying for a job. And he says, but I want to be up and up with you at the outset and tell you that, you know, and then he goes on to say, he killed a man who, who, who insulted his honor. Uh, and uh, what response did he get from potential employee, employers. And he gets a warm response from many people in the South <laughs> and no warm responses from people in the North. So um, uh, it's uh, and many, many things like that. So anyway, and it was, a, it's a methodological tour de force, the book, and I don't take most of the credit for, uh, for that. Actually, it was a German psychologist who's responsible for the best experiment I ever did, the most impressive. Who was that? Uh, Norbert Schwartz. And what was the Uh, experiment? uh, Well, I had been doing I showed that the homicide rates were higher for uh, Southerners than for Northerners. uh, And I had uh, had gone so far as to figure out that what was going on was that these were honor-related uh, mergers, murders, that's what was producing the higher uh, homicide rate. Uh, and I was talking historical facts about cultures of honor. And Norbert Norbert says that, you know, Dick, as uh, as a historian, you make a good experimental social psychologist. <laughs> yeah. words. Why don't you do an experiment on this to sh- show the point? It shouldn't be hard. So we came up with the asshole experiment where, you know, a student bumps into another student on a pretext and calls him an asshole. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and the uh, reaction is astonishingly different between southerners and northerners. I mean, southerners sort of flash. I mean, we're watching them uh, surreptitiously. Uh, and the northerners, it's sort of, you know, what's your problem? Um, so um, where did I get off? Oh, yeah. So at any rate. that that was about the limit of my contribution. The rest was, was Cohen. Uh, and uh, it's just, the, the, as, a, as a methodological tour de force, I think the, the first thing to eclipse it in the way of a book is this book that's spectacular book that's come out by Joe Henrik. Have you seen it?
0: The one that just uh, came out, the weirdest people in the world? Yes. Uh, right,
1: right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just, who, who would have thought you know that you could pr- provide such good evidence for this crummy little hypothesis that you know so, some priest some day says you shouldn't marry your cousin, and voila, a thousand years later we have the modern West. <laughs> yeah,
0: you know it does remind me of uh, I guess the same enterprise you are trying to do in uh, the geography of thought, right? That that's that's essentially the same basic premise as the whole weird business, right? That you have people from uh basically different parts of the world with that geography correlating with these different cultural values but the geography still being fundamental to it and if you understand and engage with one that doesn't necessarily buy you any insight into the other right and that's that's a point that you you've made in your own you know not just in geography of thought but you know originally it sounds like with the culture of honor business
1: um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I didn't fully track that. Could you repeat
0: it? Didn't you, didn't you have a, a, a book on geography of, of thought? Is that Yeah, I, sure, uh, sure. Oh, I guess I was just thinking that, uh, so you, you have the weirdest people in the world, uh, the Western educated, uh, industrialized, rich, democratic. That is about how, you know, culture and geography change the way our minds work. Um, and uh, you know, like you said, a very compelling presentation of that, and that's that's a theme that's run through your your work as well.
1: Right. Well, actually, yeah, I was the first to say that um, uh, you get this analytic orientation versus the holistic orientation. The ultimate reason for it is the geography of Greece versus China. Uh, you can do agriculture, large-scale agriculture uh, in China because of the geography, uh, and you get interdependence from that, uh, and you can't really do that in most parts of the Mediterranean. <clears throat> it's just mountains descending to the sea, so you get kitchen gardens and herding and trading, uh, but not uh, occupations that require uh, uh coordinating uh, your behavior with others so much. And the the nail in that coffin uh, was put there by a brilliant student who actually is in England now, uh, Aisha Oskal. Do you know her? I don't. Yeah, well, she's from Turkey. And she said, well, if you're right about interdependence causing holistic cognition and independence causing analytic cognition. Uh, You don't have to go as far as China to establish it. I can show it in uh, a Turkish village where there are some people who are engaged in occupations where they have to coordinate with other people, uh, farming and uh, fishing on the open sea uh, and others who are shepherds, don't have to coordinate with anybody except their sheep. Uh, and sure enough, she fa- she, that's what she found. She found the herders uh, to be analytic uh, as compared to uh, the fishers and the farmers. Um, so, and then <laughs> that goes on. I mean, I want to just look at a, a, a paper by Talheim. I won't go into it. It's just that he shows that uh, Northern Chinese are more analytic and independent than Southern Chinese, and ties that completely to the nature of the agriculture. Wheat doesn't require that much coordination. Rice requires exquisite coordination to get that done correctly. Uh, and he gets the analytic versus. So at any anyway, rate, that's, that's the geography. But, but uh, Henrik's uh, uh the major hypothesis of his book owes nothing to that uh and barely makes contact with it Uh, so uh in fact he doesn't even i mean he mentions analytic versus holistic cognition in the book and sort of tries to tie that loosely to his central hypothesis but he doesn't succeed in that doesn't matter but um so Moving on. Yeah.
0: Um, Okay, here's a question I like to ask. What is the most common advice you found yourself giving to your students over the years?
1: Well, (laughs) the first thing I'd say is that um, Schachter never gave me any advice about how to do science. I was completely dependent on his reactions to what I said. So if I had a bad idea I'd say, meh. <clears throat> and if I had an idea, oh, I don't know, he would go, "Huh?" <laughs> and if I had a good idea would say, "Huh?" So I said, you know, I'm learning philosophy of science by the grunt method here. I mean, maybe that was of... a
0: behaviorist experiment uh, with a little stimulus response. See, see if we can get a uh, scientific method to, to come out of uh, positive yeah, exactly. and negative
1: feedback. Exactly. And I thought, you know, well, I, I'm going to do much better for my students than that. I'm going to articulate for them. I'm not going to make them induce. <clears throat> I'm a cognitivist. I'll tell them. <laughs> Big mistake because <laughs> you get an argument. You say, this is what good science is. Oh, well, I don't know, Dick. I mean, you know. So after the first three or four years, I I employed exclusively the Grunt method.
0: That's hilarious. Oh, my God. Turns out the Grunt method is actually the optimal uh, advisorial uh, strategy.
1: At least for some people. There may be some people who are gifted at explaining it cognitively, but (laughs) not me. Yeah. Huh. Um,
0: yeah, so I guess that that that's interesting. So what? so here's another, it seems like you've had a lot of really great collaborations throughout your career, like you're talking about, uh, trying to be collaborative with your graduate students. Uh, definitely Lee Ross and and Tim Wilson come to mind is at least from the outside, seem like very fruitful collaborations. Is there anything that you attribute, uh, have you learned what, what, are your, what, what have you learned about having good collaborations and, and getting the most out of them and, and any, anything in that space of things?
1: Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, uh, I'm sure it's something distinctive about me that I like to just gab. <clears throat> uh, and that's a lot of ideas just come over a cup of coffee. Um, but uh, my career was spent at a unique university. Uh, the University of Michigan, where uh, people collaborate with each other all over the place. I mean, it's just uh, a lot of new disciplines have come out of the University of Michigan. The judgment and and decision-making tradition came out of Michigan collaborations, mostly among mathematical psychologists. Uh, the Culture and Cognition Program, the Modern Col- Cultural Psychology Program, came out of the University of Michigan with uh, the work that Hazel and I were doing uh, at Michigan. <clears throat> and uh, that was, that came over uh, uh, collaborations. Uh, the uh, Modern evolutionary psychology program. At one point, most of the people calling themselves evolutionary psychologists uh, were at the University of Michigan, and they were anthropologists and biologists and psychiatrists and and social psychologists. I mean, it just <clears throat> um, now. Why is that? And it's so strikingly different. At one point, I was thinking about would I want to go to Harvard uh, and. I said, well, you know, tell me about your your discussion groups, your uh, collaboration groups, and nobody could come up with anything. (laughs) They don't talk to each other at Harvard.
0: What do you? They didn't
1: talk talk to each other at Yale either. And uh, I think it has everything to do with the Midwestern uh, ethos. Where people are not trying to protect their reputations for being an intellectual big shot <clears throat> they're willing to they're willing to risk looking foolish and that there's there's almost nothing more, more important I think than that for building collaborations with other people uh, so that's uh, you know so I, I was operating in that milieu <clears throat>
0: Yeah, I think that's a really powerful point, the vulnerability of of looking foolish and putting yourself out there to try Mm -hmm. and understand something that's outside of your immediate area of expertise, which you may misapprehend initially. Uh, But if you do put yourself out there and and try and uh, understand someone else's area of expertise, then you get to incorporate that back into your own. Is that is that that's kind of the the deal with that, yeah?
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, and incidentally, these discussion groups, I I've been in a dozen discussion groups of a duration of a year or more <clears throat> at the University of Michigan. It doesn't work quite as well if you let the graduate students in, because people they're willing to take a at Michigan, at least they're willing to take a risk that their colleague may pretty 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 think that they're silly because they know they know they say silly things, too. <clears throat> but in front of the children, it's not you don't want to <clears throat> risk looking like a fool. Yeah. So people hold back in a right. discussion group, uh, uh, playing their cards close to their vest if the, if the graduate students are around. Nevertheless, we did have, I have been in some discussion groups, for sure that included graduate students. I mean, uh, the other, one other, I mean, there's many others, but the the epistemics movement, I don't know if you're familiar with that, or the experimental philosophy movement, uh, that came out of the University of Michigan. Mm. Epistemologists okay. talking to social psychologists and the discussion group that gave rise to that included Tim Wilson, who was a graduate student at the time. So just one further thought about the milieu. Of the university of michigan when i was at yale uh, i mean there were prima donnas i mean you know people who were there were big shots and you were gonna know it and i'm gonna i'm gonna have my way here because i'm such a big shot get out of the way <clears throat> the prima donna cannot exist at the university of michigan because it's this midwestern you know friendly uh just folks kind of stance that seeps into the university. Uh, and if you tried to act like a prima donna at the University of Michigan, it, it, it wouldn't work. I mean, it, the levers are not there. <laughs> they just say, what the hell is wrong with Smith? He's acting like a prima donna. What, what good does he think that'll do him? Yeah. Works wonders at Yale, doesn't do, doesn't do much at Michigan.
0: Yeah, you know, I spent a couple of years working at a lab in Harvard and I noticed something very similar which uh, is interesting because, you know, a lot of the people there, I wouldn't describe them as overly egotistical personality-wise, but there was this interesting effect with really everyone from graduate students through faculty, but especially faculty, and that was that at Harvard, there's this really strong commitment to conventional explanations, right? And I think the mechanism of this is that sort of by virtue of being at Harvard, you have to, at least in appearance, be the best version of what you do uh, in the field, right? right. And uh, the way to do this is not to be throwing out all these ideas that may or may not be batshit insane, but to pick the ideas that have been shown to be the most efficacious and stick to them and kick everyone else's asses with them because you do, in fact, have the better explanation right now regardless of whether the agenda that you're pushing or the, the idea that you're building your program off of is going to be the most interesting and insightful one, you know, 10 years down the road or whatever that is. And so the... the um the The result of that is that everyone is very committed to giving whatever the conventionally received explanation for a particular phenomenon is at the time, and that is a supremely uninspiring uh environment
1: in my opinion no yeah, that's interesting i'm I'm glad to hear that perspective uh, on it yeah i was i i couldn't the thing that astonished me most when I, I they couldn't come, they came up with one discussion group. Oh yes, we have. There's a cognitive science group. We meet for dinner once a month. <laughs> or <Four? Yeah. laughs> You want to have a two-hour seminar once a week at minimum if you're going to make any serious dent. Um, so, you know, it's um, it is it is interesting how how very different.
0: But so anyway, so so Michigan, there is is something else I wanted to ask you about this, which is that, so we touched on this earlier, which was Kurt Leuven. Um, he founded the Research Center for Group Dynamics, originally at MIT, and then after a couple of years, it moved to Michigan. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, his career was cut short because uh, he died pretty young. And so I'm curious uh, if... What is your speculation on what would Kurt Lewin have contributed to psychology had his career continued uh in, in the way we might have hoped?
1: Yeah, I find that hard to answer. I mean, he he might the one thing that's very distinctive about Lewin is that he wanted the science of social psychology to be relevant to really important questions. Uh, and like racial prejudice and, um, and war and uh, it, it, it um, he actually, people don't, very few people know this, but he, he uh, actually started the T group movement uh by almost by accident Uh, he had people you know some kind of experiment he had them discussing things for him particular and then later he let them continue their conversation he's no longer sitting uh, in a formal way and they start critiquing each other's behavior and stances and so on and he said well gee that's interesting and that that Gave birth to the T group movement. Uh, <clears throat> but his student, Leon Festinger, was completely contemptuous of any effort to solve social problems. Uh, hmm. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, uh, but it certainly carried over <clears throat> to Schachter. Schachter took Festinger's orientation toward social problems which is basically to hell with him I'm busy Uh, and I think he might he might have found ways uh, to intervene which is only became it's only relatively recently that social psychologists have been intervening uh, in people's lives Uh, and actually Tim Wilson is one of the very first uh, to do that, to uh, change students, college students' attributions uh, so that um, they they operate more effectively. But yeah, I'm sure you know the Stanford group uh, where you go into a junior high, first day of junior high, you have kids write about their most important values. <clears throat> and they not only and this is, this has no effect on white students. It has no effect on <clears throat> minority students who had already been doing well in grade school. Uh, it has a huge effect on minority students who are not doing well. And the effects continue for ten years throughout their lives. I mean they it just gives them a huge burst of you know of improvement in their and their Scholastic behavior, yeah, wow, yeah, so um it's now, and then of course, there's uh uh Gialdini's work, Gialdini <laughs> has saved billions of dollars for the state of Arizona by hanging tags on people's doors, saying you're using more electricity than your neighbors <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's yeah. funny,
0: I I talked to um, Denise, I'm going to try and get this right, uh, Sika, Kwa, Sika Kwaptewa, uh, earlier this week, actually, who is, uh, I believe, a student of Bob Cialdini's and also resides in Arizona right now. And from, uh, I believe, University of Michigan Psychology is where she, uh, her appointment for
1: most of her career has been based. So. Yeah, she's She's been she's at, at Michigan now.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I think, uh, the sort of connection of, of, of all that is I think Kurt Lewin's most famous quote was there's nothing so practical as a good theory. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I certainly would have been interested to see how, um, uh, how psychology and cognitive science would have developed had that been a force to to want to combine both the sort of really strongly analytic, because, you know, he had his little equation that was like, B is equal to F of uh, P and uh, S, which is behavior is a function of person and situation, or environment, it was, he said yeah. environment, not Uh, at any rate. So, you know, trying to really bear down on on quantitative stuff, even in that sort of nascent form like that. Um, But then also do it in a way such that it impacts the world around us in a meaningful way. I would have loved to see a a social psychology based off of that. However, uh, I think uh, that probably still would have had a lot of the um, you know, kind of more removed from the world, cognitivist, uh, you know, sort of trend. I think that would be very hard to overcome because I think even someone like Jerome Bruner was pretty interested in in applying you know psychology and that sort of stuff to to society. And uh, I I think that the analytic, you know, to hell with whatever's going on out there. Let's just work on our stuff here. I do think that's probably the at least for the second half of the twentieth century the dominant sentiment in, in psychology, as I understand that.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, I think 20 years ago was the first time <clears throat> you began to get people intervening, say, I know what's going on here and I can fix it. There was also, um,
0: um, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, it's, it's something I've been meaning to look into and haven't fully gotten into it, but it was, uh, the, uh, sort of, Alpert and his colleagues testifying for uh, the Supreme Court for uh, Brown v. Board of Education. That in my, uh, and again, I, 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 I've been meaning to, to study up on this. I haven't fully gotten into it. But I've, I've seen people mention that as the sort of peak of social psychologists trying to uh, do good for society at large in the in the 20th century so
1: that that's that, pretty that's interesting. A, a good thing to bring up in the context of what we're talking about yes yeah. they, they were really working on and, and <clears throat> the guy who did the doll experiments you know finding a, the little little black girls uh, are are embarrassed about being black and then they 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 um, uh, they um, are ashamed uh, of being black. <clears throat> uh, they, this was brought before the Supreme Court to show that you know that society. This is what society has done to these kids, and and then it's a kind of a leap to say, and this is partly due to <clears throat> segregation in the schools, which is one way of telling these kids that they're inferior. Uh, that was uh, it. I met um uh the um blanking on what on what those, on what his name was. Oh shoot. Um any anyway, rate, he was the first psychology uh PhD at Columbia. And uh I knew some people who knew him and um, met him one night when uh uh Malcolm X, you know, the great firebrand, gave an interview, and he was very concerned. He said, this man is, hes because he was brilliant. I mean, Malcolm X was really brilliant. Um, And he was very concerned about uh, the guy because of his beliefs and because he was clearly incredibly charismatic. At any rate, after we were watched Malcolm X, <clears throat> uh, he um, says to me, you know, it's so, the social psychology department at Columbia doesn't study real problems. And that, that was, I really felt insulted by that, but it was perfectly true. Uh, I, I just didn't feel obligated to. I think any of us at the, you know, 40 years ago if we had had an idea for an intervention, we would have pursued it. I mean, we just, we weren't doing research that was of a kind that led itself in an obvious way. I mean, the attribution work was, I think, the first work that had real stirrings of applied implications. Uh, I mean, actually, one of the studies I did was one of the first interventions uh, it wasn't an intervention in a social process. It was an in- intervention in an individual process. That's the insomnia study, where we give people a pill that's going to make them aroused at bedtime, and these insomniacs get to sleep more quickly. Uh, and that's what I thought would happen, because they would attribute their arousal at bedtime to the pill and not to the their fight with their roommate or breaking up with their girlfriend or the not being prepared for the biology test the next day. So that was, um, and I, I think very early on, we saw that there were going to be individual behavior, and individual cognition, effects that would really matter to people uh, as a result of their attributions.
0: Yeah, yeah, amazing. So um, at any rate, that's kind of, that's the main stuff I wanted to touch on. Do you think there's uh, anything, uh, obviously I'm sure there's tons, but is there any, are there any big points that I may have missed that you, you think would be good to touch on here?
1: No, but just one point. I have come up with something that uh, I advise students about and that Stanley Schachter advised me about, <clears throat> which is never respond to a critique in print. Uh, it'll just chew you up. Uh, and I followed that rule myself uh, yeah, up you know, until midway through my career. I did do that, and it did just chew me up. <laughs> and I never did it again. So it's not worth it. I mean, if it, if, it, if, it, if your critic <clears throat> you know, has really powerful arguments, uh, then you should acknowledge them. <laughs> and say, but I think I'm right.
0: Um, so you know, that's interesting. I can't remember where I, I heard it, but it's very similar to uh, this 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 piece of advice, which is that you want to have arguments on your own terms, right? So when someone is the first to deliver a, a critique of your work, you are now playing on their terms because they are framing what this argument is and you can try and redirect it back onto to the path that you were initially trying to You know go down in whatever that original work was, but you are now battling over things based on how they have framed them and you, I mean, you, you The best you can do at that point is break even and come off, you know, not you know not looking uh, like an idiot, but you're not gonna uh, win once they have been allowed to define the terms and so uh from that perspective, you're much better off doing what you're saying and just wait until the battle comes back onto your uh terms and let go of of the, the times when it is it.
1: Yeah, that that's that's part and parcel of what Chapter yeah. might have said as a reason for not doing it. Yeah. But but uh, let me ask you a few questions. I'm I'm interested by you're an American, I assume.
0: Yep, yeah, I'm from Seattle originally.
1: Seattle. Uh so uh, where did you go to undergraduate school and where and graduate school and how did you end up at Oxford?
0: I I did my undergrad at UCLA and I was a pretty straight-ahead computational cognitive scientist, really interested in Bayesian models and that sort of stuff. Did a mm-hmm. uh a, a lab manager position at Harvard for a couple of years again working on computational cognitive neuroscience. Uh modeling, that sort of stuff, and then sort of had a crisis of faith with all that and decided to become a social psychologist of, of sorts, and um, I am doing my, I'm in my second year of my PhD here at Oxford where I'm working on basically how we understand the minds of people who come from different social backgrounds. So Kind of similar to some of the stuff that we were talking about with the the ge- geography of thought and the, the weird problem which is that, so if you have someone else who thinks in a drastically different way than yours because of different worldview, different experiences, different necessities of their life. How do we best go about understanding those differences? In in um, I actually I actually uh, sort of use the Lee Ross, in quote unquote, intuitive psychologist framework and say, well, okay, maybe. You know, we know that there are problems with psychology, namely the sort of Joe Henrik weird stuff that we're, we're better at, you know, historically we over relied on our our Western undergraduate samples at Lee universities and have discounted how different, um, uh, you know, other kinds of minds can be. And, you know, people like you have pointed that out, but, you know, psychology as a whole has been on that at any rate. So instead of talking about the intuitive psychologist, let's talk about the intuitive anthropologist, because anthropologists for all their problems are the the people who have most focused on understanding cultural groups and individuals from from you know disparate cultural groups who are who are very different than themselves so that's the kind of topic that I'm I'm interested in in graduate school Mm -hmm. Um, and then I also am trying to you know essentially get a side career off the ground maybe as a kind of historian of psychology, which is where all the Gordon Alpert stuff comes from. I'm I'm working on a a book proposal right now about the Department of Social Relations at Harvard, founded in uh, 1946, running through the 70s. And it was this place where, you know, uh, social psychology, sociology, cultural anthropology, and clinical psychology came together in this one super department of the uh, of, of the social and behavioral sciences. And a lot of I'm sure you'll be sympathetic to this, uh, given, you know, that sort of itching inclination to to you know want to be in on the action at Harvard. But a lot of the really, you know, just biggest names in twentieth century social science were either faculty or were trained at the Department of Social Relations. And so exploring it uh, for its place uh in the history of psychology because you know um cognitive science a la jerome bruner and, and george miller like i said you know that very connected to gordon alpert who was one of the founders of this department and uh basically you know just embodies a lot of interesting things about a very interesting time which was cold war uh america and how you know really the face of academia changed during that time so there's all these different components of of of, of stuff there that i'm trying to Tie together and, and hopefully make something interesting out of.
1: Yeah, well, of course, when I was <clears throat> in graduate school, I mean, that was the, uh, or shortly thereafter, that was the, the place to be. I'm not sure what came out of, what did come out of the SACREL department that was plausibly related to the fact that it was. The, the progenitors were there in sacral. I mean, one thing that struck me, <clears throat> uh, I, I, um, read a book by Bruner on induction. Did you, do you know that book?
0: Um, I, I, I wouldn't be able to say which one that is off the top of my head.
1: Um, uh, i don't know what it was called he didn't write that many books so it wouldn't be hard to. uh, i mean he came out in the late 50s or early 60s i think and uh it was on induction the first three chapters i couldn't i couldn't believe it i mean they were just so brilliant saying you know to hell with this sr stuff i mean what's really important is you know cognitive stuff and how we learn about the world through our cognitive processes and how we induce and it was all it was just brilliant framing framing the problem and then he went to do the experiments the experiments were hopeless I mean they could never have told him. I mean so but I mean I really handed to him he he knew what the problems were he knew why they were important he had uh, the right way of thinking about them and that. Could well have come from uh, collaboration, from hanging out with all these other luminaries at Sacrelle. Um But, um, and George Miller, George Miller, of course, was doing uh, work, I believe, with actually with Chomsky uh, on formal uh, aspects of linguistics, I know, which I know nothing about. Um, <clears throat> but by the way this is a slight detour there was an article in the new york review of books uh, in the 60s by uh, chomsky of skinner's take on how we learn language and it's Absolutely devastating. <laughs> I was embarrassed to be a psychologist uh, when I when I read that, uh, that critique. Yeah, and, and it was a it was an important link in the history of of uh, cognitive science because it you just you know, it just showed the kind of, here here's a problem that it's hopeless to try to explain uh, in skinnerian terms or Hullian terms
0: yeah um well let's see so uh we were talking you wanted a little bit more info on some of the history stuff that we were talking about I think there's an interesting point to be made with some of the different people that we've touched on between you know, now the Cognivists and then prior to them, the the behaviorists and then the the Freudians. And so part of the argument that I'm working on, uh, I've been working on recently is that, uh, so you have Freud publishes his, you know, interpretation of dreams in 1899. You have um, John Watson's psychology as the behaviorist views it. I think that's 1914. And, it, the The basic arc of what happens is that so you have William James is the American founder of psychology with his principles of psychology, uh, 1890, and he becomes this really big figure. Everyone looks up to him. He really is setting the tone for the field. Everyone sort of recognizes him as the guy. And then... Uh, Before he, you know, was was too old, uh, he he died. That was in in 1910, and then there was this sort of rift that opened up in psychology. Uh, And uh, what James had done largely was based around this idea of stream of consciousness, right? So he, if you look at, you know, the table of contents for Principles of Psychology. Uh, you basically see a lot of the same stuff that we would talk about in a Psych 101 class today. And a lot of that stuff, the way James approached it and the way people in the Jamesian manner at the time uh, sort of treated psychology was that you had to have something consciously available to, to observe, right? Um, and that the purview of psychology was mental states that you could sort of inspect uh, in this way. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was just Wundtian, you know, introspection where it's like, oh, I'm just going to sit here and think about my own thoughts. Um, but it very much was tied around this. And so even, uh, so, so there was this problem in psychology, which is you have the, you know, sort of conscious mind on a pedestal. The guy who was the champion of the conscious mind dies and there's this hole. Now you have this, you know, sort of new uh, thing that needs to be filled. And the two things that filled that void were freud and the behaviorists uh and they in a sense were both responses to james you know stream of consciousness uh ideas and uh, uh they were both basically rejections of the conscious mind so freud delved deeper into the mind looking at the unconscious and the behaviorists took the opposite approach by denying um the sort of uh conscious uh you know the that that consciousness was something worth looking into so let's do away with it altogether and just study behavior and uh these actually turned out to be you know sort of two very different methodological questions right where one was this analytic interpretive you know freudian approach and the other was this very scientifically rigorous but ultimately kind of uh sterile behaviorist approach and uh if you look at who was tracking with both of those trains of thought throughout the entire, you know, you know, 1920 to 1950 period, uh, it was very much uh, Gordon Alpert. And then, then when he started to sit down and do uh, his work, you know, and it culminated in his his personality book. I think it was 1937. Then his nature of prejudice was was 54. Uh, It was a combination of the insights of Freud, which he was a big fan of. I've actually met him in Vienna when he was a young graduate student. Um, And uh, the behaviorist, you know, his brother who actually lived longer than he did, um, who was this, you know, social psychologist based on, you know, behaviorism. So anyway, that's the kind of, that's the, the outline of that arc uh, as I as I understand it.
1: Yeah, well, that's actually that's interesting to me. I'm going to tell you something that will shock you. Um, when Freud came to the U S. the one time that he did, and we, we, we gave lectures at Clark Clark that?
0: University in uh, 1909, a, a year before James died.
1: Right. Um, James told Freud uh the future of psychology belongs to your work Hmm. i mean i mean it was shocking because the future didn't belong to freud (laughs) and it it certainly more plausibly did belong to james yeah yeah Uh, but
0: uh you know what's funny that the obverse of that is that so freud has his you know, he jotted down his own notes on the history of psychoanalysis, and he talks about that visit to Clark University, and it's hilarious because he doesn't even mention the fact that William James was fucking there. Like, it's like, that is the key, that is, that is the, that's the headline. That, and um, it didn't even occur to him to mention that, that William James showed up there. And it's kind of funny because uh, he actually kind of, Freud had this kind of, Donald Trump way of of talking about things where there are only three kinds of people in the world. There are those uh, who are his disciples there are those who are uh, his detractors and then there are people who don't exist. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, you know, so he, th- he, Jung at the time was his disciple. And so he was like, oh, yeah, my, my buddy Jung was there, and A.A. Brill, who was his translator and sort of underling. And then there were all these people who didn't know what they were talking about because they disagreed with me. And then William James, uh, to my understanding, was sort of, you know, I, I, I don't know that he was, uh, maybe, maybe he was, but I don't think he was overly hot or cold on psychoanalysis. Um, uh, the, the maybe he was bullish on it. I don't know, um, but because he didn't, to my knowledge, take a super strong stance on it in the sense of being a disciple of Freud, Freud didn't even bother mentioning uh, the fact that he was there. Uh, I think that's hilarious.
1: Oh, that, that that is that is surprising. <clears throat> um, someone uh, I read quite a while back uh, pointed a contrast between Lewin the Berliner. Uh, and Freud, the Viennese, yeah. uh, and um, but Freud was completely intolerant of anything that was opposed to his ideas. I mean, he just said, "You know, shut up, you idiot." Yeah. I mean, and Lewin couldn't have been more different. Lewin was open to anything. He would discuss any idea. He would, you know, um, he he didn't insist that his approach was right. Uh, uh, and so on. Um, so it's, and, and then the, the irony is, you know, you expect the, the Berliner to be uh, the Nazi <laughs> and the Viennese to be oh, um, gemütlich. Um, sure. So, so um, but I'm, I'm going to let you go. Right. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> I do want, I do want what, what What? do you think with the Sacrelle department um, Accomplished. I mean, how what what was better than it might have been because there was a socrel department.
0: So that's that's a big question uh, and a complicated question and one that I hope to answer discursively in the uh, the you know book treatment. But there there are a couple basic things, right? So there is an interesting sense in which the socrel program succeeded and an interesting sense in which it failed. And the failure was that even though it tried to become this big interdisciplinary project, it didn't really work in that sense, right? And it's kind of similar to what you were saying with the lack of collaboration, um, is that even though everything was kind of set up around this idea of let's get everyone in the same room who has different areas of expertise, and then we're going to create this sort of uh, just mega social and behavioral science. And that failed because the sense in which that was a failure was that social relations never became a thing. That's not there there is no, you know, group of people that you can look at and be, oh yes, here is the interdisciplinary spawn of of what happened. So in that sense, uh it didn't come off. Um but there are a few senses in which it actually was a success. And that uh They're sort of their own disciplinary successes. And so I think there's just two basic things to say about this. One is that a lot of the central figures of the modern versions of specifically psychology, uh, uh, sociology, and anthropology, those got their shape at Socrell. So the, the founders were Talcott Parsons, sociologist Gordon Alpert, social personality psychologist, uh, Harry Murray, personality s- psychologist, and Clyde Kluckhohn, cultural anthropologist, among, you know, other people. Uh, and Talcott Parsons is this really interesting figure in in sociology because his first major work was to synthesize Max Weber, Emile Durkheim, Alfred Marshall, and one other person. Um, Mar- no, not Marx. Uh. At any rate, the major pre-modern figures of uh, sociology and particularly economic sociology, and then he came up with this sort of particular framework, and every a huge portion of the sociology that came in the second half of the twentieth century is sort of linked to that history of sociology through a response to Parsons, uh, you know, structural functionalism. So sociology had this big thing. So that was the founder there, and then uh, it turned out that after Parsons, it was sort of difficult to get going uh, in a new direction with with sociology. And it was really in the later stages of the department the graduate students who took that on. So you have people like um, Mark Granovetter, Strength of Weak Ties, um, a problem of embeddedness. Two of wait, the three most. Wait wait,
1: wait, wait wait. Yeah. Who? Mark Granovetter, uh,
0: a sociologist who was a grad student at SocRel in the last years that it existed. Um, The
1: concept of the strength of weak ties, that's his?
0: Yes, so that was his paper. I believe that is the number one most cited paper in the social sciences. Um, uh, And then he has the problem of embeddedness, I believe is number three, Um, uh, you know, whatever list and metric this was. But at any rate...
1: I actually don't know
0: what that is. Though. It's Oh, it's a great paper. Um, it basically, the, the, the basic argument of strength of weak ties is that, so if you look at, for example, how people get a job, it turns out most people don't get jobs by talking to people who inhabit the same sort of, um, the same social spheres. Instead, Uh, which which are their their strong ties, their closest friends. Instead, people get a job uh, through their weak ties, which is people who inhabit a different social sphere, but they have a, you know, sort of, you know, little connection to. And they know something different about the world, they know about different opportunities. And so, you know, when you go to your buddy, uh, who, you know, is just sort of more of an acquaintance, a a weak tie, uh, then you're actually more likely to learn something about the world you wouldn't otherwise know. And so the strength of weak ties is the more of these sort of little connections you have, the more valuable your social network is. And so the whole modern conception of a social network, uh, which is probably the most prominent idea of sociology in the second half of the 20th century, uh, was totally a product of the Department of Social Relations. Both a couple of the the younger faculty there who thought uh, Talcott Parsons was uh, misguided, and then their uh, particularly their graduate students were the people who brought that to, to full fruition, uh, people such as Edward Lauman and uh, Mark Granovetter. So that's, that's, that's sociology. Anthropology, uh, anthropology Clifford Gertz, uh, my favorite academic of all time. Uh, he was a graduate student there. I think it's hard to argue that he's not the most uh, influential figure in cultural anthropology in the second half of the 20th century. And then, of course, Jerry Bruner and George Miller, um both had connections to uh, Socrel in various capacities before, you know, going off to do uh, the Center for Cognitive Studies and and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so, if you look at each of those three disciplines between sociology, anthropology, and psychology, a large portion of what the modern landscape looks like is importantly traceable to things that were happening in that particular department at that particular time, which also happens to be, it is a microcosm of what was happening in America in general during the Cold War, which is the defining era of higher education uh, in in America for super interesting reasons, which I'm not going to go into because I'll I'll launch down another 10 minute, you know, sort of uh, explication of that. Um, But uh, th- th- that time from, you know, the mid-1940s to the mid-1970s, that is when basically the academia that we know and love slash despise today, that was formed during, during that time. So socrell is, is in
1: many ways a microcosm of that. I don't know how socrell got started because um, there was a dean at Harvard. Some some
0: Paul Buck. What's that? Paul Buck was the, the dean who uh, uh, was... Was behind Sackrell, who who got the uh, got not the ball rolling, but was the one who gave Harvard's institutional support to Sacrelle.
1: Uh But uh, there's um, the Center for Cognitive Studies and Bruner's. Have you read Bruner's autobiography? I have. Um, it's been a while, though. I haven't. I
0: haven't done my full deep dive into Bruner yet. Because, like I say, I'm the sort of. Uh, so I I I, uh, I haven't I am not as intimately familiar with all of Bruner's works. I'd like to be right now, uh, uh, though I do know a lot of general points and have come across lot. Long- but anyway, the point is, I haven't read the the autobiography recently.
1: Yeah, you will you, really, you all want to read that. I will get there eventually. You get some time at Oxford. You'll love this anecdote. Oxford offered <laughs> made the job yeah. offer. And he didn't really want to go, but he saw, well, really, in some sense, Oxford is more prestigious even than Harvard. But I, I, I didn't really want to go, and so he gave us his excuse for not going to Oxford—that he had an ocean-going boat, and, and that's very convenient for Harvard because he could just hop in his boat and go wherever he wants. <laughs> uh, and that wouldn't be possible um, at Oxford. And. Uh, they told him, they came back with the answer, you can use the prime ministers. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> so a... what he's going to do. His oh, excuse is gone, so he has to go. That's funny. Uh, And it's some, a psychologist there made his life miserable. I you know,
0: mean, that's actually one of the reasons that I feel very much a kindred spirit with uh, Bruner is that he wasn't a big fan of Oxford. So. Uh...
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it was one individual that soured, soured him on it
0: uh but um t.s Eliot uh famously hated oxford and he said um oxford is beautiful but i don't like being dead <laughs> and that applies <laughs> that both to so, this the city in general is, as a little bit as well as the department
1: but that's it, it is so beautiful yeah. i mean it is just incredibly beautiful yeah um, anyway, well, this has been great fun talking to you yeah, it's and, been, uh, I really if you and send me a copy of your history when it, when it gets done.
0: Yeah. If you don't mind, maybe I'll send you a a, a draft of some of the stuff you might be interested in. Uh, and I'd appreciate any, you know, comments or thoughts on it, but I'll, I'll, I'll be in touch with that. And, um, I'll also let you know, uh, when this episode comes out. Very good. Cool. All right. Thanks for taking the time to uh, talk, and uh, it was uh, it was worth the the wait and the technical difficulties. So,
1: well, obviously, I enjoyed it too. All Great. Right.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Richard. Have a good uh, have a good New Year's Eve. Thank you. You too. That was my conversation with Richard Nisbet. If you listened this far, then God bless you. Um, you know, if you're interested in some of this stuff, shoot me a note, happy to, um, you know, tell you more about, uh, what I've been up to. And, you know, I'm interested to hear what your, uh, interests is, are in this. If, 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 I mean, good Lord, if you listen this far, certainly there must be, uh, some, something in this that's of special interest to you at any rate. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh My name is Cody Commerce and I will be back here with another episode next week of Cognitive revolution.